Today on Power Tips Unscripted, we talk to Thomas Cressman, managing partner of Cressman and Westberg PC. In this industry, the competition is high and the temptation to bend the rules is strong. While some do it maliciously, for others it begins without ill will. But then that line keeps moving inch by inch until soon it fades out of view. Thomas is here to share some of the consequences of poor and sometimes jailable decisions. And we'll hear what they are in just a minute. I'm gonna do this the old fashioned way. Okay, guys. Let's get out there and make a difference. Hi, I'm Victoria Downing, and welcome to Power Tips Unscripted, where we talk about tips, tactics, and techniques to help you build a strong, profitable remodeling company. And I'm here with my co-host, Mark Harari. Well, hello there. Hi there. How are you? I'm excellent. How are you? You know, this is a great topic because I don't know that everybody that we deal with, everybody that we, you know, present to at seminars and such, really understand the consequences of some of the decisions that they make. It and it can not necessarily be like I feel like breaking the law today. Right. I want to do something illegal. Right. But, eh, well, this isn't that bad. Right. And then you just keep inching forward, and mm-hmm. next thing you know, it, you've been doing it so long, it feels right. And then you're a story in the newspaper. <laughs> you know, yeah. we don't yeah. want that to happen to anybody that we talk to, do we? No, no. So, shall we kick it off? Yeah, kick away. All right. So again, today we are here with Thomas Cressman with Cressman and Westberg. He is a attorney that's very active in our local pro chapter. Has worked with a number of the remodelers in the Washington D.C. metro area, and really knows his stuff. So we've invited him back to talk about some critical issues. So welcome, Thomas. Thank you for having me. Oh yeah, it's always fun having you on. You know, all these legal things that I don't know a whole heck of a lot about in terms of consequences or, you know, the details, but I know you do. Yeah, and some of these are can be very bad. Some right. Doozies. Okay, so there's, you know, I know we're going to talk about a number of different things, but one of the first ones is undocumented workers. What does it mean to have a work to hire a worker who's undocumented and what are some of the downsides and consequences that can happen. Yeah. So an undocumented worker is someone that came to this country illegally or came to the country legally, but their visa has lapsed or for some reason they've stayed here illegally. Um, So you're not allowed to hire an undocumented worker that's not authorized to work in the United States. Okay. That's in accordance with the Immigration and Reform Act. Um, So why do people hire undocumented workers, Um, especially nowadays, as as Mark was talking about, with the competitive atmosphere of construction, finding good workers is difficult. Um, And if you find somebody that has skills but is maybe uh, an undocumented worker, you might be willing to take that risk. Um, The other thing, this is why, for example, when you hire somebody, you give them an I-9 form. That I-9 form is to check to make sure that they're actually authorized to work here. Now, what if somebody comes, they're really skilled, you give them an I-9 and they lie on it? They lie. Well, it's pretty hard to lie on an I-9 form. You have to give two forms of documentation, such as either a driver's license or a passport. Got it. Um, So it's not as simple as just writing, I have the ability to work here. You actually do have to produce documents. And 
the employer is supposed to keep those documents in a personnel file. Okay. So they come, they hire somebody, they don't have them fill it out, they don't keep the paperwork. So who is going to know? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> so if there is an audit of some type, either by the Department of Labor, um, it even could be by their IRS, depending on how they go about it, um, violations for not filling out an I-9 form range anywhere from $230, but can go up at you know 20000 plus. Now, that's just civil money fines. There also could be criminal charges if it's determined that you're engaged in a pattern of hiring undocumented workers. Okay. That's not so good, is it? No. So, so let's say you get the first guy and you, you know, like, here's the line, right? Here's the line that starts moving. So you get the first guy and then he's got a couple of friends. You bring them on. And at this point, you just stop asking all together until you have a whole field crew out there of undocumented workers. Absolutely. The other tricky part about it is um, because most of uh, the employees don't have a, if they're undocumented, don't have a social security number, can't get a, um, uh, what's called a TIN, which is essentially like an employee identification number, but for individuals, um, the employer, the contractor in this case, is usually then assigning them a status of an independent contract, right? Because it's okay. hard to do it as a W-2 employee because you need that social security and those other things uh, to process that payroll. All right. So that opens up another whole can of worms, right? So that's absolutely. They're kind of looking at that as, oh, this is my loophole. They're just going to exactly. be a subcontractor. Yeah, this is a loophole. So what happens when you hire somebody as an independent contractor? You don't pay them benefits, right? Right. You don't pay them a, a fixed fee or maybe something on an hourly rate basis, but you're not tracking their hours for overtime. Right. You're not typically looking at minimum wage. You also then don't have payroll taxes. You don't have to pay for Social Security or workers' comp or unemployment insurance. Right, right. So then going along that inching uh, analogy that you were using, contractors start finding, well, maybe this is actually really beneficial because I get somebody that is skilled, so I'm filling that labor gap. But then I also don't have to pay as much as if right. I went out and found somebody that was a documented worker. Absolutely. A lot less. Correct. Yeah. So, so I think it would be, it would be, I mean, so how, if that's the loophole, so how, how is it, how do you get caught that way? Cause now so, I didn't have to ask for the I nine or anything. Yeah. So it's, it's, First of all, let me clarify: it is not a loophole. No, right? No, yeah. I'm, um, an illegal this loophole. Is, this, I'm using air quotes, but they can't see me because this is audio. Right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so it usually does come in the form of a, an audit. Um, it actually could come in the form of a lawsuit from the undocumented worker. So just because they're an undocumented worker doesn't mean that they're not subject to minimum wage and overtime or workers' comp. So a situation you can imagine is that they get hurt on the job. Well, they're entitled to that workers' comp, um, even if they're a misclassified independent contractor. And so then it might start unraveling mm -hmm. during the investigation of the workers' comp claim. Or they just go and they make a complaint to the Department of Labor that I haven't been paid the minimum wage, for example, or I haven't right. been paid for overtime. Yikes. And they could do that to start kick off an audit, whether that was true or not. I mean, Correct. whether the minimum wage bit was or overtime was true or not. Yeah. So are there other ways that people misclassify 
staff as independent contracts other than when they're an uh, undocumented worker? Yeah, I mean, we typically call them in our firm, we call them captive trade contractors. Um, Those are, in essence, the subcontractor of yours that basically only works for your company. So a true independent contractor is somebody like myself as the law firm, right? We represent many uh, uh, clients. We don't just, we're not beholden to just one. And so the the difference you see is you have, let's say, um, you know, a framer and you pay them as a separate company, maybe, or you just cut them checks as an independent contractor to their personal name, but they really don't work for anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't share in the profit of the company, for example. And you as the contractor are dictating all of their means and methods. Uh-huh. So the important thing to remember with an independent contractor is when you hire an independent contractor, you're really looking for the result, right? Like I hire you, Framer, to go frame this wall. Mm-hmm. My job as the uh, person that hired you is not to say it has to be, you know, this many inches on center, you have to put this number of nails here. The more that you exert that control over their means and methods, the more it looks like an employer-employee relationship. Well, again, how would anyone know? <laughs> again, you know, the, the weird thing is it all comes out of the same kind of complaints yeah. that you do with undocumented. You get uh, uh, one of these workers that are upset for some reason for pay and mm-hmm. they go and they make these claims um, or, you know, our firm, we typically see it in the termination realm, right? We, we sever the relationship and then they go and see uh. counsel from an attorney and the attorney says, well, really, it sounds like you weren't an independent contractor. You're a mis- misclassified worker. And so what are they entitled to? Well, they're entitled to things like back pay, Wage uh, wages that maybe were left out over time, um, but then the IRS on the other side they want their piece, right? Right. Like back taxes, including withholding taxes that you have to pay. The penalties vary anywhere from one thousand to five thousand dollars, depending on the number of convictions, and that's per person. So if you have a essentially a structure where you're misclassifying all of these would be employees, those fines can rack up drastically. And of course, this, the most severe one is criminal conviction. And so what happens if it's criminal? Uh, it can be any level of misdemeanor or felony. And oh, geez. the owner could go to uh, to jail. From prison. Do, you, do you know anybody that's ever gone to jail? Our firm doesn't do really criminal defense, so okay. we don't handle those kind of cases. Yeah, um, We have had criminal cases come to us uh, along those lines, and we mm-hmm. just pass them off to a criminal defense attorney that's better situated to handle them. Now, what about things like benefits? Like if somebody is found to have been misclassified as an independent contractor when they were, in fact, an employee, in addition to back taxes or make sure minimum wage and some of that stuff, do they, are they also entitled to pay the money equivalent of all the benefits they did not get that other employees might have gotten? Absolutely, because they're <laughs> supposed to be treated like any other employee would have. So if you offer benefits... Um, to your other employees, that misclassified independent contractor would be entitled to the, uh, usually at this point, it's, they're not working for the company anymore, so it's the cash cash equivalent. Right, right. So what can, because I could also see a situation where 
the the owner simply has no idea, right? I mean, the guy or gal comes and says, "Oh yeah, I'm, I do all this work. I'm um, Acme Eight LLC, and all that great stuff." But um, is there something that I could do to protect myself? Um, can I require you know a list of other clients they're using or working for? Or, you know. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, an analysis of whether somebody is a misclassified, it, or let me say, if, uh, the analysis of whether somebody is truly an independent contractor is very factually intense, okay? Um, it used to be that you, it being the employer and the would-be independent contractor, used to be able to agree that we're going to do an independent contractor relationship. And the IRS, in their guidelines, used to put a lot of emphasis on that intent of the parties. Mm -hmm. They have since retracted that, and you can't now agree to be an independent contractor when really you're an employee. So how do contractors go about uh, protecting themselves? Well, really seeking good counsel from a lawyer will be a good starting spot. Um, and, it, you know, I boil it down for my clients to really just one simple thing. How much control are you exerting? There are certainly a lot more factors involved in that. The IRS has a list of about 12 different mm -hmm. factors, and each state varies on whether they add to that list or not. Um, so things to your to your point about what do we do to, to pr protect ourselves? If you know that they're really only working for you, that's usually a pretty good red flag. Right? <laughs> Even they passed a, a new law in 2021 where the presumption now is that all workers – are employees unless you can prove otherwise. Oh. So guilty until proven innocent. <laughs> exactly. Which is very different for us in this country. So really figuring out are they truly working with other people or are they really just working for me is a big red flag. So Thomas, can I I want to focus yeah. on that one component you mentioned about and you brought it up a couple times. Uh, exerting too much, right? I'm hiring you to to install that sink. I can't tell you how to do it. Um, if I'm exerting too much of my own influence, however, is there a, a line or or anything on that? Because a lot of, including our members, we have standards, right? We want to uphold standards, and whether it's a subcontractor or an employee, we may be saying we require you to clean up at the end of the day. You got to do this. You, no shoes, right? We have all these these rules if you're going to work for my company. So is that okay? Or is that also breaking that rule? Yeah. Um, that becomes part of that factual analysis. So we write subcontracts all the time, right? And they typically do say, you're going to clean up the job at the end of the day, or you're going to build all of this in accordance with, you know, the NAHB standard, right? right. Or, or some different standard or whatever you want to use. Um, that's okay because you're just saying I want the end result to be this. Mm -hmm. Where it gets more tricky is when clients come to us and they say, I want you to write in the contract, for example, a roofing contractor. This is how many nails you put in a piece of shingle. These are the type of nails, those types of things. Mm -hmm. That starts becoming too much. When you're really telling them not just what the end result is supposed to be, like using you know, a certain standard of the work, but actually saying, here's a step-by-step -step analysis. Huh, that's interesting. Yeah. Man, that seems like that could See, be thinking, interpreted different ways, right? Yeah, it, it can get really 
messy I would and especially well I guess it wouldn't matter if there's specific details in in plans and stuff then they have to follow the details in the plan so if you have a certain cornice or design or something like that that's okay because you, you're telling them to work by the plan yeah it can, I could see this getting really confusing though <laughs> so there's yeah, a it this way um if you're saying hey we want you to wear our logoed shirts mm -hmm. right? or we want you to put our logo on our trucks um or we want you to clock in and clock out at certain times. Those are the kind of controls mm. that really are big red flags to both um, in a private lawsuit, but also in a uh, in an IRS audit. Mm -hmm. Right. All right. I want to bring up one more topic of things that we've seen over the years, and that is the I'm not going to say the lack of protection of clients' money. So, you know, we recommend strongly that people are overbilled with their clients, meaning they're billing the client ahead of the work that they will perform so that they're always working with their client's money, not being the bank, right? And that's like a best practice for business. Sometimes, though, I see people collecting a ton of money, and it might be that they've had some financial difficulty in the past, and they take the money they're collecting from client A and spend it on client B or or they're they're doing something really silly like gambling with it or investing in questionable investments that sort of thing talk a little bit about the problems that come with that absolutely um the first thing is number 1 I'm a big proponent of that same practice okay I represent mostly contractors and Frankly, my advice is always get as much cash as you possibly can. Make sure mm -hmm. you are not the bank. Make sure you're in a good leverage position if a dispute ever does arise. Right. Now, what then you're talking about is the real problem is when they rob Peter to pay Paul, right? Exactly. Yep. Project A is, is good. They got a nice, big, healthy deposit, but Project B is really underwater and they need to move the money. Yeah. Um, so there's actually statutes that address this in most states. So for example, Virginia has one that um, basically says that if you are paid money for a project, you can only use that money to pay for labor that's being done on that job or materials. You cannot use it for another project. Okay. And if you violate that, you're opening yourself up to civil liability and in, in civil lawsuits, but also criminal charges like larceny. Oh. Um, but the one thing that's always important, because I get this question all the time with that issue is, well, how does this impact my ability as the contractor to withhold money from a subcontractor for poor work? The statutes make it clear that you don't, you are still allowed to withhold money for poor workmanship from a sub. Okay. So you could have collected $100,000 from the client and the subcontractor could have come in and done a bad job, you can't, you don't have to spend the hundred, any of the hundred grand on that subcontractor, but you also can't spend it on any other project. Yes, exactly. If, if the client gives you the money, that's, it's really the client's money. Some, so Virginia doesn't call it a trust statutes. Others, um, states have actual, what they call a trust statute. Maryland has a construction trust fund statute. It doesn't apply to home improvement contractors, yeah. but okay. I'm going to use it as the analogy for what other states uh, have and, and that I've seen. Um, basically, it requires the general contractor to hold those funds in trust for 
the work of that project. Okay. Okay. Um, whether that be in trust with the subcontractors or the vendors. Now I get this question a lot, which is, okay, if I'm holding this in trust, do I have to keep it in a separate trust account? Most statutes do not say that you have to have it in a separate trust account. In fact, the, the Maryland one uh, specifically says you don't. Um, so commingling the funds isn't necessarily a bad thing as long as you have it properly allocated within that one fund that mm -hmm. this 100000 is for the Jones job. Now, does that include the profit portion? I mean, once you've earned profit, you could be pulling that out to use somewhere else, right? I mean, you don't have to wait till the job's done because we're not working on a completed contract basis. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to wait for profit. But if there's companies out there that are saying you owe us money, that's where it gets really sticky. Okay. So let me just think about this for a minute. So if a company has used this practice for years and they just are managing to squeak by, right? They just don't make quite enough money to get out of this habit. So as long as they can keep it going, they might get away with it for a long, long time. But at some point, it seems like the card, the house of cards will fall. And that's when they start getting in a jam, right? Absolutely. It, it is a essentially a pyramid scheme, right? Oh, yes. Uh, so, and we are on the, on the law, construction law side, we're seeing a lot more of these claims come up from homeowners. Really? So out of the blue, we... We didn't see them for years, and then all of a sudden, we saw a huge amount come through our, our firm. And it's done because, again, it does have that criminal component. It has penalties in, in the civil lawsuit side. So it's one of those, can I add some leverage to my lawsuit beyond a simple breach of contract? Right. Okay. All right. Wow. So many ways that people can go wrong you know, and get themselves in trouble. But if you stay in the straight and narrow, you can avoid all that, even though it may be costing you more. And you have to learn how to run a good business as well Absolutely. that makes Absolutely. profit. Whew. That was that was a lot. Uh, Thomas, you are what we call here a captive guest. <laughs> and, you know, as a captive guest, we're going to force you to follow our rules and get into the lightning round. Are you Absolutely. okay with that? All right. And now, here's the Remodeler's Advantage Lightning Round. It's a trap. All right, here we go. Six questions in 60 seconds. What's your favorite business book and why? You know, I just finished reading this one called Lobster on a Cheese Plate. <laughs> I just Good answer. I my flight from uh, Orlando the other week. Excellent. Good answer. Good answer. <laughs> if you weren't an attorney, what do you think you'd be doing? Uh, I would be a roofing contractor. Oh, gosh. What are you not very good at? Oh, uh, any household chore. What's the last show you binged watched? Um, billions. Mm. If there was a movie about your life, who should play you? You know, I'd like to say Brad Pitt. <laughs> That's who I was thinking, Thomas. <laughs> I don't uh, think Brad would agree, but... Do doppelgangers. Doppelgangers, that's right. Do you put on both socks, then your shoes, or sock, shoe, sock, shoe? Both socks, then shoes. Hey, this has been great, Thomas. Thank you so much for, you know, taking the time. I know we, it took us a little while to get you on, get a schedule that worked for everybody, but this has been great. I very much appreciate it. Now, before I let you go, though, two things. First of all, if people want to learn more about you and what you do in the contracting world, how would they get a hold of you? Yeah, they can email me at twc 
at cwattorney.com. So that's Tango Whiskey Charlie at Charlie Whiskey Attorney, A-T-T-O-R-N-E-Y.com. I can tell you've done that before. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> <laughs> right, and then also now, before I let you go, I would like you to share your words of wisdom, your five words of wisdom, and why they resonate with you. So I did this last time I was on the show because I, I still think they're one of the best. And I got this from a fellow attorney, which is uh, lawyers are just presentation artists. Uh -huh. um, and that's because specifically in my practice, which is litigation, mm -hmm. uh, we're in court, we're presenting, you know, these facts. And my job is to sway the jury or the judge that my client, who is already always in the right, right? Yes. That is actually in the right. Yes, that's great. Thank you so much, Thomas. We very much appreciate it. And we'll have you on again if you're game. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thank you. You know, there are so many ways that small business owners can get into trouble. And again, like I said, some obviously some people are just maliciously out there to to do harm and bad. But mm -hmm. but some it's just you don't really think you're doing anything. And, and then it's not so bad. And then you just, you know, before you know it, you're you're in too deep. You know, I think also, you know, with a lot of our members, most of our members, I would say, are you know, highly professional and follow the rules and do things the right way. And it's tough, though, when they find themselves competing against, you know, shady, shady or or uneducated right. contractors that don't know what they're doing and can come in at a lower price. I don't blame them for getting a little perturbed. You know, the the, the thing about this, too, is because it, it kind of I think a common theme with most of these is, well, how's anybody ever going to find out? Right. And inevitably, you're. Even beyond that, I mean, just any dis you know, revenge is the dish that's served best served cold, right? I mean, yeah. that's the one. It could be it could be anybody, not even the parties involved. It could be your spouse, you know, you're getting a divorce right. or a, or disgruntled right. kid. Or or just um, you know or a neighbor. Or, right. It's yeah. just anybody that knows it and you just turn them the wrong way and they just make a call. Mm -hmm. and, you know, all they have to do is say, I don't think this guy's doing it right. Well, even if they are doing it right, somebody could do that to you and still take up huge amounts of effort if yeah, you're not record keeping properly and that yeah, sort of thing. That's a different topic. But, yeah. <laughs> yes. but, uh, yeah, it's just, it's not worth it to put no. yourself in that position to be, um, uh, I mean, just to have to deal with it all and defend and, you right. know, and God forbid you get into a criminal situation. I mean, the, you know, losing some money is one thing, but you don't want to get to jail. Right. Anyway, on that uplifting note, let's just do it right. Yes, please. <laughs> so uh, we wanted to thank Thomas for uh, sharing these insights with us. And of course, we want to thank you for listening week in and week out. I'm Mark Harari. And I'm Victoria Downing. See you next time. This has been another episode of Power Tips Unscripted, the remodeler's guide to business. Visit www.remodelersadvantage.com to learn more about Roundtables, our world-class peer advisory program. There you can also find information about our business consulting services, upcoming live events, and much more. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show and comment on iTunes. Thanks for listening. It's a beautiful day.